Welcome everybody to another in our series of conversations between Hapal Gra and Caleb Morpin. And today we're going to be talking about a concept which is very central to Marxist understanding of the economy, uh, which is overproduction crisis. And um, I find this very interesting topic. It's one thing that you really don't get forgiven for talking about. Um, the bourgeoisie, of course, avoids the concept like the plague. They use all kinds of euphemisms uh, when the effects of overproduction crisis are felt. Um, but even as a socialist, when you go online and try to explain basic concepts of Marxism, I notice always if I mention overproduction in any uh, podcast recording or meeting or speech, there will be at least one and probably several people underneath will come jumping in and saying, no such thing as overproduction, what's this woman talking about? She's an idiot. So <laughs> Papal, could you perhaps start us off with just a very basic overview of what is the Marxist concept of overproduction? Well, re really, first of all, I have to warn you, I'm not a very good reader, but I want to give you a quotation from the Manifesto of the Communist Party by Marx and Engels, which sums it up in words that I could not even dream, dream of being able to conjure up for your or the audience's benefit. So here it is, for many a decade past, Right, Marx and Engels. The history of industry and commerce is but the history of the revolt of modern productive forces against more modern conditions of production, against the property relations that are the conditions for the existence of the bourgeoisie and its rule. It's enough to mention the commercial crisis that by their periodical return put the existence of the entire bourgeois society on its trial, each time more threateningly. In these crises, a great part not only of the existing products, but also previously created productive forces are periodically destroyed. In these crises, there breaks out an epidemic that in all earlier times would have seemed an absurdity, the epidemic of overproduction. Society suddenly finds itself put back into a state of momentary barbarism. It appears as if a famine, a universal war of devastation, had cut off the supply of every means of subsistence. Industry and commerce seem to be destroyed. And why? Because there's too much civilization, too much of the means of subsistence, too much industry, too much commerce. The productive forces at the disposal of society no longer tend to further the development of the conditions of bourgeois property. On the contrary, they have become too powerful for these conditions by which they are fettered and as soon as they overcome these fetters, they bring disorder into the whole of bourgeois society, endanger the existence of bourgeois property. The conditions of bourgeois society are too narrow to comprise the wealth created by them. Uh, that's basically the, 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 the summary. You can dismiss me and say, you can go home now. But basically, this is something that we've got to take into the working class circles. It isn't that there is not good regulation of banks. It's not because there is co corruption. It's not because people were not intelligent in running the present system. It doesn't matter if every one of them was a mathematician, an arithmetician, 
and a scientist of the highest order, you know, bourgeois society can only function in the way, the way it does, because the conditions of bourgeois property relations are too narrow to comprise the wealth that is produced in this society. And the modes that the bourgeoisie employs to increase capital, which is the sole purpose of its existence, are mass production. And they produce like there's no limit tomorrow, but there is a limit and that limit is provided by, by the market. And as Marx constantly pointed out, the real barrier to the development of capitalism is capital itself. It, it, it's, it's the biggest bar barrier because the way it functions, its main purpose contradicts the mode of production. The mode of production is social. A lot of pr products are produced on a massive scale because production is socialized. It's no longer the single handicraftsman or the peasant producing uh, goods and, and, and food. It is produced by socialized labor, thousands of people involved in, in, in production. But it comes into contradiction with the purpose of that production. And the purpose of that production is to increase capital under the conditions of bourgeois society under which alone it can function, which means they're constantly competing. We're not against competition, but the result of competition under the conditions of bourgeois, bourgeois rule is basically that whenever there's a profit to be made in a certain sector of industry, hundreds of capitalists rush in to cash in on the, on the bonanza, on the El Dorado that has been opened. But soon that particular sector becomes saturated with the products and a lot of workers are laid off. You find all the time in, 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 in your life. And this contradiction is really the basic cause of the miseries of society. It produces unemployment. And if the workers are unemployed, it only exacerbates the crisis. They no longer can buy the goods that have been produced on a, on a massive scale by, by, by social, socialized labor. And the bourgeoisie overcomes these crises by basically enduring a crisis, destroying not only the products that have been produced, but a goodly portion of the means of production. Old factories are shut down. Machinery during the crisis goes into, if I can use an old fashioned word, disutude. It can no longer, no longer be, 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 be used. And then of course they do it by suppressing the wages further which of course does not help to overcome the crisis or by extension of the market, which is to find new markets, which only create the conditions for the next crisis. And so it goes on and has been the case ever since the first general crisis broke out in 1825. 20, so we have had regular uh, crisis of overproduction, you know, and the result of which is as Engels and, and Marx and Engels describe as though there had been a de devastating earthquake or there has been a devastating fension, uh, uh, famine and the whole of bourgeois society is thrown into a state of barbarism. If I may use the analogy, the devastation in the industrial field is like what you see in the Gaza today with, with the, as a result of the bombing by, by, by the Israeli Zionists of, of that place. So that is the comparable devastation in economic terms 
They may not use bombs, although, of course, the crisis of capitalism very often leads to rivalry between the rival powers, and it leads to war as well. And then there is destruction, not on the scale of Gaza, but on Gaza multiplied by thousands of, of times. So that, that, that is something we need to take to the working class. It's so easy to understand. And yet the shame of the socialist movement is it does not take that understanding into the working class circles. They're the ones who need to understand. They're the ones uh, who are a class that suffers under the conditions of, of capitalism. And as Malcolm X would have said, the way bourgeois propaganda carries on, they make the working class hate the, their fellow workers and not hate the ones who oppress them. In fact, they're against, against, against the oppressed. And we got to change that, um, th that, that mode. We got to change that paradigm whereby the workers know who their enemies are and they fight for their own class. Great, thanks, Dad. Um, you know, what I, what I notice when I'm listening to you speaking there is really, um, you're right that the poetry of the way Marx and Engels express it is, is very notable. When they talk about the revolt of the property relations, it's a very um, kind of uh, illustrative metaphor. Um, and they're really describing, you know, this, this strange situation of famine in the midst of plenty. You know, this want when so much has been produced and this, this weird situation that we've never had in any society before, where previously there was famine because there was a lack of food. And now we have famine when there's too much food in the world. You know, we, we have cold when there's too much coal. You know, the famous story of the coal striker telling his kids why, they, why their house was cold. You know, and this kind of, you know, that Marx described that universal war of destruction that seems to have, seems to have gone on. And I wondered, um, Caleb, if we could talk a little bit about, you know, the fundamental uh, problem that's at the root of all of this, which is the disparity between the, the wages the workers take home and the value of the wealth that the capitalists need them to buy back in order to realize their profits and this and this um, this disparity, which is built into the bones of the uh, production, a system of production for profit. Right. Well, it's interesting because when you say overproduction, I've noticed to many people who think that they're familiar with Marxism, um, they immediately think of some kind of environmental critique about you know consuming too much or producing too many products and wasting the natural resources of the environment. And that's not what the concept is at all. It's that the worker is not paid enough in wages to purchase the product that he produces. The worker is also the consumer uh, and that the wages paid out in the process of production are never enough to buy back the products that are produced. And this is a constant problem. And John Maynard Keynes talked about underconsumption, right? That was his whole thing. It wasn't overproduction, it was underconsumption. But he's pointing to the same problem same underlying issue which is the worker cannot buy back what he produces and you know and that the more efficient the technological advances become the more easier uh, it is to produce products uh the you know the sooner you have this problem uh and that this is really the built-in problem of capitalism and this was the root of all the great financial crises uh, i think you know the the socialism utopian and scientific by frederick engels talks about the first great crisis of overproduction being in 1825 
uh, and then them happening every two to three years and, you know, the Great Depression, you know, everyone knew it was caused by abundance. Uh, and that this is the built in problem of capitalism. And it's very, very important to talk about in our time because of artificial intelligence and because of all the labor saving technology that, that has come through. Um, if we're going to understand the crisis in the world today, we have to understand it in terms of overproduction. Absolutely. Thanks, Caleb. And I think there's something important there as well, isn't there, to understand, and maybe Hapal can talk to us a little bit about this, in terms of how the capitalists in the early days, in the 1820s in Britain, how the capitalists were able to kind of escape their crises, what mechanisms they used, and what the problem is with any of these mechanisms today, now that capitalism is imperialism and capitalism is global, um, I wonder if you could talk to us a bit about that, Hapal. Well, before I do, I just want to make one point, which is very, very important. We have to reject the underconsumption theory. You know, this is put forward as a counter to Marxism that we are poor because there is underconsumption. There is not underconsumption. Under uh, there was underconsumption for the masses under all exploitative societies. You know, work, workers underconsumed because there wasn't enough stuff to, to, to be had around, as you have pointed out earlier, Jyoti. But today, the workers underconsume in the midst of what Fourier called plethora, i.e., abundance. There's abundance of everything, and yet people go, go, go without it. And that is because the way the capitalist system works. It's it produces on a massive scale. It's able to produce like there is no tomorrow. But the purpose of capital, capitalist production is to increase capital. It's to make profit for the capitalist and to increase capital. So at the end of the production cycle, capitalist wants to be in a position where he has received more than he threw into the production at the beginning of the cycle. And that, of course, is what Marx and Engels describes as the revolt of the productive forces against product, production relations. The productive forces are social. It's produced on a massive scale by thousands and millions of workers. But the appropriation is by the handful few, the darlings of fortune under the conditions of capitalism. Now, of course, capitalists, when they receive their money, they spend some for productive consumption, i.e on means of production, to expand production. They also have very luxurious lives, but they can't have such luxurious lives that they spend all their profits on luxurious lives. Even if they wanted to, even if they were foolish enough to want to do that, they just, there's too much wealth around for them to do that. So in the ultimate analysis, the people who have to purchase these goods are the workers and capitalist exploitation by its very nature, you know, exploits the workers. And the term exploit does not mean low wages, which is what most of the time we're taught. Workers in such and such a place are exploited because they get only $6 as opposed to $10 an hour. Whatever their wages, it's the wages system that produces this condition, not low or high wages. Of course, we support the workers who are fighting for higher wages. They've got to make a living. But in the end, they have to have the understanding. Whatever their wages is not enough to get them over the conditions in which they are subjected to a, a position 
where every morning they've got to get up and sell their la 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 labor, labor power. There's no way that they can make a living. They, the whole point of primitive accumulation, as it's called, most people think they were primitive means of accumulating. Primitive accumulation simply means separating the worker from the mean, means of production. So he has no independent way of earning a living. He hasn't got his own workshop, hasn't got his own farm. And he, if he didn't go to work, he would starve, his family would starve. So it's, 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 it's got to go though. And the other thing that we have to say is, as Caleb rightly pointed out, there are some environmentalists who say, we must discourage consumption. On the contrary, we want to free the productive relations from their capitalist integument, from their capitalist ownership, so that they, the relations of production are in harmony with the productive forces, and there is unlimited expansion of production and is able to satisfy the working people's demands. When we talk about overproduction, it doesn't mean there are too many goods uh, that the workers don't want. No, there are plenty of goods that the workers want, but they can't have them. There is no way they can have them unless they have the desire and willingness to get these goods and back it up by their purchasing, purchasing power, their purchasing ability. And when that is not there, there's no way they, they can buy. So the capitalists would rather destroy. It's well known in some countries, especially in your country, Caleb, where it was normal for a lot of food to be destroyed during period, period, periods of crisis. And of course, even if they don't destroy it, you know, that become a bit unfashionable because people will see they're destroying it, just goes rotten. It's not, it's not given away free of charge. The whole, we want productivity of labor. There are some backward socialists who also want to stop productivity of labor. On the contrary, productivity of labor, no matter how exploitative and how horrible it is under the conditions of capitalism, it oppresses workers, it makes them uh, uh, live miser miserable lives, uh, un unemployment, homelessness, des 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 destitution, uh, star starvation. But it actually lays the basis for a society in which there will be abundance. Because under conditions of capitalism, if you can produce goods in a much smaller period of time, you give the workers rest. You know, there's no law that you must work eight. There's no law that says you must work eight, 10, 12, 14, 14 hours. On the contrary, as the productivity of labor rises, it should be a liberating factor in liberating humanity from the, the drudge and toil of work under the conditions of capitalism into a society where you can work for producing goods that are essential for the entire community, for their needs, and also have time to play the piano, to go and swim, to do horse riding, to do all sorts of things, depending on what, what, what your liking is. And in the Soviet Union, people had varied, so, you know, hobbies that in capitalist countries, you can only dream of. You know, people specialized in beekeeping in Siberia. You know, the habits of breeding of the bees, bees in Siberia, all sorts of things. Scientific inquiry was encouraged. And during the holidays, it was one of the most endearing and enduring sights 
to see thousands of kids at bus stations and railway stations queuing up to go on their summer holidays where they would be kept by teachers and qualified specialists who would look after them for the four to six weeks of, of holiday they had, the kind of holiday that under conditions of capitalism, only the very well off can, 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 can afford. So Jyoti, have I answered your question or was there something else? <laughs> you went off on a thing about under consumption uh, as opposed to overproduction. What I was asking you about, it was very interesting though, that's fine. Uh, what I was asking you about was the ways in which the capitalists would, would manage to overcome the crisis in the early stages of capitalist development as opposed to the situation we have now, which uh, when, now, that the, now that the market is global and the crisis therefore is global and some of those mechanisms that they used to use are no longer possible to use. And I wondered if you could talk about that. Well, as far as I, I know, and this may be my complete ignorance, first of all, capital has always been global. You know, it's not confined to one country. Very shortly, the markets get saturated. Capitalists, capitalists have always traded with, with, with foreign countries. Even new, new markets, like when America was dis discovered, it was a tremendous boon for the, for, the, for the capitalists to export their goods from Britain, really. That was the workshop of, of, of the world. It was the only act in the town. It was the, was the town, town, town itself. And that, 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 that carries on. Uh, after the initial conditions. But of course, the way they overcome in the olden days is exactly, in my view, the same, i.e. by destroying the old productive forces and by destroying uh, the, 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 the products of industry, making people unemployed, making people miserable. And they do the, the, the same. The only thing is that since the October Revolution, they cannot carry on in the old way there is still some kind of a safety net to prevent workers from lying in the streets and dying of starvation, which happened in Marx and Engels days. And it happened quite really right up to maybe even after, after, after the First World War. That in the imperialist countries, at least, d does not take place. But if there's a special point that you're aware of, I'd, I'd love to be informed. No, well, you know, maybe you can correct me then, because I had a, a kind of way of thinking about it, which was that one of the one of the mechanisms uh, that was able to be used certainly by the British for, for decades and decades was expanding the market into places around the world, you know, getting tighter control of markets and monopolizing control of markets and finding ways to expand outwards beyond the beyond the borders of Britain to kind of get, kick themselves out of crisis mode, whereas I'm sure I read uh, a description by Stalin in the interwar period uh, where he talked about crisis in the conditions of imperialist economics being essentially a permanent feature like it's just there's not a kind of boom and bust cycle there's a bust and bust cycle as far as the workers are concerned so am I wrong about that? No I don't think you're wrong about it I mean I can give you an example from the recent history of last um, taking from 1997. I mean, the present crisis has been non-stop with interruptions of a couple of years, which they call recovery. And recovery is really, doesn't last very long, lasts a couple of years. And on top of that, the recovery is on the basis of higher productivity of labor. 
so it doesn't actually get rid of unemployment. Uh, the number of people who lose their jobs in a crisis, hell of a lot of them don't get their, jo their, their jobs back. And if there are jobs, it won't be the same workers who have been butchered in the, in, 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 in the, in the process. So the, the present crisis, which started in 1997, it started with what used to be the financial crisis, which started, I believe, in Thailand. Yes. When, the Thai, when the Thai bought that their currency collapsed com completely. And very soon, that what they call contagion, the crisis spread to other countries like Malaysia, Indonesia, etc., and even eventually Japan. And then the prayer of the capitalists was that they hoped that it would not jump continents. Well, it very soon jumped continents because then came the crisis in Russia and Russian industry and commerce were, were bettered. A lot of capitalists who had bought on the cheap, a lot of assets in Russia in the aftermath of the collapse of the Soviet Union in 1991, of course, lost their shirts. And some bourgeois journalists even put it, it is a lovely simile, it is as though the Red Army has been marching on Berlin. You know, that's what was happening, that it's an irony that they they were thinking of a lovely Russia with a freely running market and the whole and the whole thing was gutted and then very soon after this this crisis had been slightly overcome came would you remember the dot-com bubble that happened in 1903 everybody was buying shares in 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 in, 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 in industries concern, concerned with te technology and the shares and stock markets went through 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 the roof. And after three, four years, it bust. And so there were then a couple of years of recovery. And then Caleb, correct me if I'm giving wrong information. Then bust the subprime mortgage crisis, where American capital was so desperate to make investments and find people who would borrow money they found people like very poor people to lend money to without security, without job, without any guarantee, without any, any collateral. Well, after that bonanza was over, the, but the bubble bust and it produced the worst ever crisis of, 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 of capitalism. It spread to literally the, the, whole, the, the whole, whole world. And of course, people who had borrowed money, working people every now and then get a chance to take their revenge. So when they couldn't pay the mortgage, they simply threw the keys away and left their, their, their homes. What's more, before going, they took a hammer and smashed the place up before leave, leaving. And very often, of course, because the property prices were going, the collateral was there. They even borrowed money on the basis of having a, having a collateral. So it left capitalism in a very bad way. And most of the financial institutions of finance capital, the banks, the big insurance companies that are like AIG, they would have gone bankrupt. And Paulson was the uh, treasury secretary in the US at, at, at that time. He allowed Lehman to go, go down. You know, because he genuinely believed 
that was the only way if you've been lending irresponsibly you must suffer the consequences as they did in marx's days but it had such ramifications it actually frightened the daylight out of all capitalists so all the central bank governors from united states to britain to the european central bank and everyone joined together to find a rescue package and literally hundreds of hundreds of billions of dollars were spent to rescue these banks and during this crisis the biggest names in banking industry from natwest tsb etc uh, et to the major Ameri Amer american banks their market capitalization from say being 250 billion dollars actually came down to five or ten million dollars can you just believe these banks with huge property por portfolios and their market capitalization is 10 or 15 million dollars so that is the state to which the financial institution had been reduced and that's all because of the crisis of capitalism a lot of stuff has been written about it and the bourgeois uh, commentators simply say there wasn't oversight of borrowing you know there was too much credit there was only too much credit because by lending money the banks could make make money as long as the payments come in there's no such thing as too much credit and too little credit the credit is good if the borrower can keep on repaying the principal as well as the the interest it only becomes too much when people's ability to pay goes away and when does it go away the workers when they've lost their jobs and the capitalists when their industry is not selling anything so if at the bottom of it when you look at a financial crisis it's really not a financial crisis it's the first one to appear it's basically a reflection of the underlying economy namely it's a crisis of overproduction thanks Apollo. you've touched on something really important there i think which is the way that the crises are described to us when there's an explosion in the economy number one the bourgeois economists are always taken by surprise and then they all scurry around trying to work out what happened and it's always a situation where like a week before they'd all been saying how well everything had been going i mean everybody remembers uh, gordon brown saying we found the goldilocks economy you know a week before all the banks went bust and we have this all the time right look capitalism's working fine look as long as big companies are posting a profit nobody cares how they're making it whether it's sustainable what's underlying that you know and it's literally quarter to quarter and as long as the money comes in happy days and the fact that things are increasingly kind of built on sand uh and and are and are due for a collapse and are overdue for a coll another collapse you know they don't they're not interested in that every now and again you hear a kind of a whistleblower going think that there might be some problems in the economy everyone's like oh, there's profit margins what are you talking about then one institution goes bust and everyone looks for reasons in that institution oh this guy behaved badly this guy didn't have the right oversight this guy's greedy you know oh, it's not capitalism that's about greed just this this man here you know all oh, the regulators were caught napping you know they, they create a narrative that's about an isolated individual or an isolated institution to hide the fact that underlying all of this is the crisis of overproduction when you can't make profits from productive activity you get into all of this speculative activity you get into lending money people so that they will put demand into the economy because they haven't got money in their pockets to do it you know from their wages 
Uh, and this level of indebtedness now we're in this weird situation where not only ordinary people are hugely indebted and particularly people who have houses and can borrow against their collateral or people who have been allowed to take out credit cards, but companies. It turns out that lots and lots of even very big uh, companies are doing this thing where they will take loans out, not in order to invest in their businesses in some way, but literally just to hand over to shareholders. So it's a way of keeping it looking as if your business is viable, right? But that's not sustainable. Those loans are going to come due. And then suddenly, not only you haven't got profit margins, but how are you paying to service those loans? Right? And you are, you're seeing these problems building up in so many areas of the economy now that anyone who's paying attention can see that the crash that's brewing right now is going to make 2008 look like a walk in the park. Um, and yet, you know, most of the financial papers are, you know, will will tell you every day that capitalism's, you know, working really, really well. So um, I wondered, Caleb, if you wanted to, to add to any of those those points that Papa was discussing there. I've got a lot, actually, because I remember the 2008 financial crisis very vividly. Um, you know, and I mean, what it was really rooted in is that the wages of Americans had gone down. Uh, you know, the good paying industrial jobs were replaced with service sector economy. Uh, you know, living standards were decreasing um, and technology was eliminating eliminating jobs. And just Americans couldn't afford to keep spending in the same way that they had once done. Um, and that uh, what I remember uh, also was you, you remember after 9-11, uh, George W. Bush, uh, he said that Americans who wanted to help the country, they should go shopping. I don't know if you remember this, but it was it was very famous. Yeah, that people, I, do. I do. Yeah, people were horrified. It was like, what? You want us to go shopping? But what he was saying was keep spending because they were sitting there trying to figure out how they could keep Americans spending. And so there was a legalization of all kinds of lending practices that had previously been illegal. But it was done with the intent of keeping Americans spending when they couldn't afford to keep buying. Right. And that there was a lot written about, oh, it was so irresponsible. And this free market ideology caused them to uh, deregulate and allow these illegal lending practices. But they did it because it was the only way to keep people spending. And that's the point that, that, that a lot of the liberals are missing. It wasn't just that they were greedy and they wanted to have these practices. They needed Americans to keep spending money. Um, and, uh, and then, of course, these illegal lending practices um, uh, that, that were legalized, these practices. I mean, it would be like a family, you know, uh, they're struggling to pay their bills. But they have a house. They take a second mortgage on the house, uh, you know, where they just have to pay, you know, mortgage payments. But, you know, their contract says that after the third year, uh, their mortgage payment triples. Uh, and of course, you know, you, you can't, you know, they're not able to pay that. And so then their home gets foreclosed and all over Detroit, all over California, all over Ohio, Pennsylvania, you know, the 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 suburbs and the, the towns that were known for having, you know, where the American family has their house and their car and all of that, they were all getting foreclosed. And I remember walking through neighborhoods in Detroit where literally every house had been foreclosed. There was, it was like a ghost town. It was eerie. Um, and it was that was the 2008 financial crisis. Um, and I point out to people that, I mean, when it really gets down to it, when they say the housing bubble burst, what yeah. that was about is that millions of Americans lost their homes because there were too many houses, uh, because Americans couldn't afford to keep buying houses at the same rate. And so in order to desperately keep them buying houses at the same rate, all these prep practices were legalized. And then 
uh, it still didn't work out. And so, you know, the tent cities sprung up. And, uh, you know, Joti, you probably saw that uh, when you were in Oregon. I saw that in, in Portland as well. The number of, of Americans that are homeless uh, and, and now all over major cities in the United States, homeless encampments are everywhere. Whether you go to Washington, D.C., you go to Chicago and the police are always breaking them up uh, because they're a bad look. Right. It makes the property values go down. No one wants to see a big, you know, a bunch of tents where a bunch of homeless people live. But especially if you go to Los Angeles, you know, they have a they, the Skid Row area where just thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of homeless people uh, live in tents now. Uh, and this is a country with with housing for everybody. I mean, there, there's massive housing, but uh, but there's massive homelessness at the same time. And it's it's not just ironic. It's the massive amount of houses that cause the homelessness. That's the capitalist system. The other thing that I would add is the, you know, the Great Depression in the 1930s was a long term capitalist crisis. It resulted from the great innovations in assembly line production that Henry Ford uh, and others and Taylorism. And there were all these breakthroughs in how to you know produce uh, products more efficiently. They had the roaring 20s. And during the Roaring Twenties, the slogan that was everywhere, uh, the bourgeoisie was using, is they said, Ford has defeated Marx, or Ford has overtaken Marx. And that was their slogan, that Henry Ford had figured out this very efficient way of doing capitalism. He paid his workers you know, certain wages, and he regulated their lives in certain ways. And so Fordism has defeated Marxism. Well, then the Great Depression happened, and everyone saw that, no, Ford had not defeated Marx. But... The Great Depression was not resolved until you had the Second World War. And the Second World War was every major city in, in the modern world, uh, except, you know, in the United States. But every major city in Europe being destroyed, Japan being completely destroyed. Uh, it was mass destruction on such a colossal scale that it was able to reboot the global economy. And then after World War II, because there had been so much destruction everywhere, right? And so millions of people had been killed and so much destruction had gone on. Then we have the post-World War II economic expansion, uh, which is remembered as the greatest uh, episode of economic growth in human history. But that was also because the socialist bloc was rebuilding. Right. And the developing you know, countries that were, you know, Eastern Europe was joining, you know, and eventually China and North Korea. And and you, you had the, the reconstruction uh, in the socialist bloc where the consumption uh, they needed, they needed supplies, they needed steel and all of that. And so many, many countries that had become socialist countries uh, were, were purchasing goods. Um, and, that, you know, from about the, the late 1940s until early 1970s, you did have a huge explosion of economic growth. Uh, but that growth was caused by the mass destruction that came with the Second World War. That was the only way they were able to reboot their system uh, was with uh, was with that mass destruction. And then on top of that, it was socialism that was a huge, huge factor. Um, one thing that infuriates me, and we get this a lot, especially when you talk about economics in the United States, is that it's just, you know, it's almost, you know, you know, liberals don't know anything about economics. They want to talk more about, you know, LGBT and women's rights and things like that. It's conservatives who think they're experts on economics. And their argument is, well, America is a socialist country. America is a communist country. We don't really have real capitalism. If we just had real capitalism, everything would be fine. Right. That's their argument. And we get this junk economics that's pushed. It's like everywhere, you know, and the academic economists tend to be more Keynesian. But your average person who thinks they know about economics believes this free market nonsense. Well, you point out to them that the greatest economic expansion in human history, right, that, that, that post-World War II economic expansion, that was one, it was communist governments, right, rebuilding and, and all of that. Um, it was also the era of social democracy and the welfare state in Europe, right? I mean, that was because they, they saw the, the, 
the threat of communist revolution and all that. And so that's when you got your National Health Service uh, in, in Britain. That's when, you know, guaranteed employment in France and places like that, where these these capitalist governments are just doing everything to appease the population to prevent a communist revolution. And in the capitalist sector of the developing world, you had these kind of military Bonapartist regimes uh, that, you know, like, you know, the Shah of Iran or Park Chung-hee of South Korea and other that were using heavy state control uh, in order to stabilize and develop in, in their countries to hold off communist revolution. So throughout the post-World War II economic expansion, this this great episode, of there's no free market economics. Free market stuff doesn't arise until the 1970s when the post-World War II economic expansion comes to an end and, you know, they're having a crisis and it's a, basically a, a push for austerity, right? They say it, the justification for getting rid of the welfare state is, oh, well, we need to have real capitalism. You know, if we get rid of the minimum wage, everyone will have a job. Well, that's, that's not true. That's just something that they made up because they want to get rid of the minimum wage, right? And that, that uh, libertarian Austrian school uh, economics, uh, you know, Milton Friedman and the Chicago School of Economics. This is all just propaganda invented to justify austerity because the capitalists need to make more profits from the workers. They want to drive the wages down. I think that's a really important thing for people to understand. Definitely. Uh, there's something um, struck me when you were talking about the tent cities. Um, you know, it's really important to remind ourselves of the Hopal did right at the beginning of this episode, but you know we have to constantly come back to the the human cost of all of this insane waste. It's an insanely wasteful system, and what it wastes the most is people. People's lives are thrown away by this system because they can't be made productive use of, profitable use of by this system. And this picture you reminded us of of the fact that we have ten cities side by side with empty homes. And <clears throat> in particular, the homes that are empty in Britain tend to be the most expensive ones because they've just become places where real estate, as the Americans call it, where you park your money. Um, and they're just assets. And because they're an appreciating asset, quite often it's a pain even to put someone in them as a tenant. You know, it's, it's no longer got anything to, it's completely divorced from its use value as a home homes are irrelevant to capitalism houses as property and an asset you know are things which are bought and sold and you know on the increasingly you know the dispossession of the poor from their homes whether it's kicked out because they can't pay the mortgage or um kicked out because of the privatization of social housing which we had in britain in a, in a mass way over the last decades increasingly you find that when workers are dispossessed of those homes they're bought up in the last resort you might feel like oh i sold my house to an individual person but over time what's happening is more and more land more and more houses end up in the hands of giant property portfolio managers they're being bought by hedge funds there's a development being built just very close to me and recently um there was a noticeable switch from workers buying the houses there, aspirational workers killing themselves to get a really high mortgage for a really shit house. Suddenly, uh, you know, mortgage rates have jumped up recently, along with the cost of living, far fewer people able to afford a, a first time or even a house move mortgage. Um, the remaining houses that are still being built are all being bought by hedge funds who are gonna run them as social housing. <laughs> 
<laughs> what a joke. So they, they're going on to property portfolios. And um, this is something that people, you know, also don't, it's kind of invisible, you know, going on behind the scenes, this kind of concentration of the wealth of, of people in, into the fewer and fewer hands, again, on somebody's property portfolio. And the fact that people need homes and there are empty houses, you know, this is exactly, you know, this is what capitalism is. You know, Engels wrote a lovely pamphlet called The Housing Question in the mid 19th century. And if you read it today, it describes the situation. And he explains why you can't solve the housing question inside the conditions of capitalism. You know, and it's a it's a really useful read for, for anybody. Um, Hapal, was there something you wanted to come back on before I? I, I another point. I, I do. There are two three points that I'd li like to make. First of all, there's undoubtedly unprecedented prosperity uh, as far as working people are concerned following the um, end of the Second World War. Twenty thirty years were a peer period of literally kind of prosperity that the working class had never ever experienced. But that is not just because the socialist countries were in existence, which is absolutely true. Even more important is the fact that 50 million people were slaughtered in the Second World War to decide whether Germany and her allies or Britain and her allies would come out on, on, on top in the world of <coughs> domination and, and, and property. Now, if the working class wants to pay that price every 20, 30 years, losing 30 to 50 million people, probably you can have that kind of prosperity forever from, from time to time. That's very important to say and to confront working people. Are you prepared to sacrifice their, your families, your sons and daughters and relatives for the sake of that kind of temporary prosperity? Secondly, Capitalism does not give a damn about production. It's about making a profit and making money. It doesn't matter how, how it does. Producing underwear, producing women's clothing is as legitimate as producing armaments and merchandise of, of death. It'll go wherever it can. And war is not an aberration. It does not contradict the fundamentals of property, private property. On the contrary, it is actually the real application in real life of private property. And war, of course, is as much a means of destroying wealth as it is for some capitalists to make, make a, lot, a lot of money. And they will do, sometimes they risk their lives to make it. Like Germany, for example, and Japan came out of it very badly. German state was, was smashed. It did not come out as a United State. Um, you know, there was the GDR, um, for, for a number, of, number, number of, of decades. And thirdly, when times are good, capitalists don't really think of crisis. It was only a few days before the worst crisis by, at, at that time, the, the, the Great Depression of 29, as Caleb rightly said, which lasted up to the end of the Second World War. President Hoover was saying, we had never have seen such proper prosperity and we can look forward to it. A few days later, there was a busting of the stock exchange in, in America with all its, its ramifications. And capitalists then did not go into five-star hotels to have good time. They went there to jump from the 14th floor to their deaths. And it was quite common 
for the clerks at the booking desk to ask, sir, do you want to spend the night or you simply want to book it for jumping? <laughs> if you don't believe me, you, you, you can read the economic book, 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 books of, the, of that time. That's what they were doing. They were jumping through to their debts because they had to pay debts, which they could not, could not repay. Or they were involved in some kind of fraud and for a change, they might be prosecuted. So they were, they were killing themselves. And in the last 30 years, the wages of workers in all the capitalist countries, but especially in America and Britain, have been stagnant, while the wealth of the monopoly capitalists has been increasing exponentially. And this is because in the, in the rush to make money, the capitalists of the imperialist countries have transferred productive facilities through export of capital to relatively poor countries. And China was one of the biggest beneficiaries of that. So a lot of industrial production has shifted to China only to find 30 years later, ah, we were not really thinking very hard then, were we? Because the Chinese are now big competitors. Uh, and, and how can we deal with China? We have to stop selling them, um, you know, semiconductors. We've got to start, stop selling them technology, etc. But China has reached a stage where actually, if it puts its efforts into it, it can produce all the technology. But what the capitalists have done is in the thirst for money, they've created a competitor. Now they're trying, I don't think they will succeed, but they're trying to shift production to countries like Vietnam and India. But supposing they succeed in India, what do you think the Indian bourgeoisie will do? It will not prove very amenable. Once they become powerful, they, they would of course want to compete. And the Americans would find they are in difficulty. And when people say, oh, we should friend show, we should bring production back home. Well, it's not gonna take place. The whole point of export of capital, excuse me, <coughs> is to make money. And if you can't, if, if, you, if, you, if you can't make money at home, so how, how are you gonna reassure the industry? Because if the industry was to be reassured, American workers will expect far higher wages than the wages that are paid to workers in countries like China, India, etc. They would be uncompetitive. They would not be able to sell. <clears throat> Sorry, carry on because I'm having throat, trouble with my throat. Yeah. <clears throat> The thing that I always point to is self-driving cars, because there's a lot written about how we're very close to having self-driving cars. Um, the technology is there. Uh, and pretty soon, you know, we can have cars that drive themselves, artificial intelligence with artificial centers, GP GPS tracking, et cetera. And that would be a great thing in a society. In a socialist society, self-driving cars would be great because all these all this labor of driving uber drivers and truck drivers and traffic courts and you know state highway patrolmen all i mean all of that would be no longer necessary and human labor would be you know productively spent it elsewhere but in a rational society and you know andrew yang the politician in the united states he kind of kind of was kind of famous for pointing out that if we had self-driving cars 
and the United States, there would be riots in the streets. There would be there would be mass hunger. There'd be millions and millions of people out of work and it would lead to desperation and poverty. And that that points to the problem with capitalism, that technological advancement and greater abundance resulting from it leads to greater poverty. And that socialism is about overcoming that. It's having a rationally planned economy so that this contradiction no longer exists and the amount of abundance in society can expand even higher and we can advance technology and become more efficient and everyone gets wealthier as a result uh, and living standards go up and we can reach that ultimate goal of communism, a stateless, classless world of vast abundance where people can just do what they feel like doing and take what they need from each according to his own ability to each according to his need. Um, and that that is the that is really what socialism is all about. Socialism is about freeing the productive forces from the artificial restraints of capitalism. Um, and that is a very, very important point to understand. I think Frederick Engels talks about the difference between capitalism and socialism is the difference between lightning and just, you know, electricity as it is and concentrating electricity, you know, when you plug in an outlet or something like taking all that irrational productive power that's just kind of out there and organizing it so it can be concentrated so the rate of growth can expand. But this is very important because there's this notion now and everywhere I see this. If you go to if you go to Barnes and Noble, the big you know bookseller in the United States, if you look for books on socialism, all the books will be about degrowth. Right. And, you know, about how de socialism is about degrowth. We're going to regulate the economy so that everyone has less and we say stabilize the environment, right? And that there's, I mean, there's so many books, you know, degrowth, the future beyond capitalism. You know, the problem with capitalism is that it produces growth and that they, and this is wrong. I mean, this is not Marxism in any conceivable way and it's very, very dangerous. And it doesn't represent socialism and the aspiration of the working class. What it represents is the desire of the ultra rich to stabilize the economy by, you know, by destroying the means of production on a massive scale. Um, and if you read R. Palm Dutt, his great book, Fascism and Social Revolution, that's the basis of fascist economics, right? Is, you know, is, is in, you know, destroying the productive forces, driving down living standards, reducing consumption in order to stabilize capitalism. Like that's the basis of fascist economics. And that's very, very dangerous. And that, you know, the idea that, that socialism is we're, we're going to have the government force everyone to be poorer. We're going to have, the, I mean, that is that is such a dangerous conception. And that's what social democracy has really turned into. Uh, you know, Stalin talked about social democracy being the, you know, the face of fascism. I mean, at least in his day, the Social Democrats wanted the wages of the workers to go up. I mean, now, you know, social democracy, uh, the woke left in the United States, they really are at the point where they are they are talking about going backward in order to stabilize capitalism with heavy handed controls. And then a lot of working class people, you know, they hear Klaus Schwab. Right. And you'll own nothing and be happy about it. Right. And, uh, you know, and and they talk about, you know, they have these dark, you know, and the, and the right wing is able to kind of rally working class people against these very sinister kind of, um, you know, social engineering fantasies of the ultra rich about, you know, People live in pods and, you know, having birthing licenses. That's one thing, you know, you know, how you have to get a license to have children and the government decides how many children and all that. And the ultra rich are definitely thinking about all of these things because it's the only way they can save their system. Right. Uh, the Malthusian options, you know, I mean, you know, the, you know, the ultra rich are talking that way. The lower levels of capital are in revolt against that because they don't want their profits to be cut into it. But but the message of the working class is a contrary message, which is that society should have have no limit to human growth 
and with public ownership of the means of production, living standards could constantly increase. Um, you know, and it, it's it's worth pointing out that the computer revolution is the basis of the of the crisis of overproduction that we're living in right now. And the computer revolution, uh, it's it's largely the result of the fact that during the Second World War, uh, you know, they you know in Britain you had Alan Turing and his decoder machine, uh, and that you know there was there was a, a huge amount of investment during the Second World War by the state in computer technology. But then after the Second World War, um, and especially starting in the 1970s, uh, the U.S. imperialists realized that this was something they could beat the Soviet Union on because the Soviet Union did not have the ability, they did not have the same amount of money to invest. And the Soviet Union, in, in about 1980, they had their own home computer system that they developed. You know, it was a modern home computer system, but they didn't have the ability to produce it on a mass scale because they were surrounded and barricaded. And there's a NATO treaty that forbid any high technology going to any Eastern Bloc country. Uh, I believe it's the Multilateral Treaty on Technological Control, something like that. And they prevented, you know, and so the Soviet Union was forced to develop all the computer technology that they made on their own. Uh, but they still had great achievements. I mean, they invented space travel. They, I mean, they, they, they were able to have breakthroughs in, in computer, but they couldn't, you know, uh, carry them out on the mass scale. And that it was the government, it was the capitalist government in the West that very much pushed the computer revolution, that it was a strategic decision by the intelligence agencies. The market wasn't going to do it. Uh, Google, uh, Amazon, uh, Microsoft, Apple, all of these companies were created by loans specifically given by the intelligence agencies, the National Security Agency, the CIA, uh, the FBI, et cetera. They, they strategically said, we can beat the Soviets with control of information technology. Uh, and so they started, you know, making it happen, um, you know, forcefully. It wasn't the market that naturally did it. Uh, and then the computer revolution led to the crisis that we're now in. It led to, you know, this mass crisis and now with artificial intelligence. I mean, there's so many examples of technological breakthroughs that have led to mass unemployment. I talk about book binderies. It used to be thousands of people had jobs binding books in these factories that made books. And, you know, people talk about if you wanted to print a book, uh, you know, 10, 15 years ago, 25 years ago, maybe you wanted to print a book. You had to print 5000 copies of it or it wasn't cost effective you know, because there would be no point in doing it. Well, now we have print on demand. You know, a, a book can be pushed by one person pushing a button. A whole machine makes the whole thing by itself, right? And so all these workers that used to work in these book binderies, that's not a thing anymore, right? Print on demand, uh, uh, you have a machine, you push a button and a book comes out. Um, you know, there's many examples, short order cooks, right? It used to be short order cooks where it was, that was a good paying job. A lot of working class people could get, you know, that if you had a little restaurant, you needed what they called a short order cook. You don't have that anymore. Most food is produced almost like a little factory. If you look at fast food, the way they produce food, it's almost like they have a factory that's making you hamburgers or whatever. Uh, there's many, many examples of, of technological breakthroughs and especially breakthroughs involving artificial intelligence and the computer revolution leading to more unemployment. And that's not rational. And socialism is about overcoming that so that we can have a huge amount of vast abundance uh, and, and get to that ultimate stage of communism. That's Marxism and the degrowth stuff. That's very, very dangerous. And that is that is the economics of fascism. And it's being spoken of in the name of socialism. And a lot of working class people don't like socialism because they think that's what it is. They think socialism is we're going to make everyone live in a pod and own nothing and be happy about it in order that in order to make sure that Klaus Schwab and the big bankers can stay at the top. And that's not socialism at all. That's fascism. Absolutely. There is this very uh, weird and um, insidious and 
uh, what's the word I'm looking for, is everywhere, right? Uh, All-encompassing kind of takeover of terminology. And that's, of course, not an accident. You know, the ruling class, ever since Marx's day, the ruling class has been creating machineries of obfuscation because the truth is now there in certain very vital fields like history and political economy. And in order to stop people accessing the truth, you have to have this increasingly complex machinery of hiding the truth. And um, it's, it's big and it's multifaceted and it is really everywhere, right down to the comments section on YouTube videos, you know, little trolls who come along and say, oh, but of course Marx was disproved because of X, Y, Z. And they've got their little lines that they put up under things to stop people from engaging with the information themselves. Now, I encourage everybody who looks at these types of videos and says, oh, that sounds interesting. Go and read for yourself, Capital. Anybody can read it. It was written as a popular book. It wasn't written for political, econo political economists only to understand. It's a popular book to bring the understanding of political economy and the way that capitalism works to the workers, because they're the ones who really need this information in order to organize themselves to overthrow capitalism. So it's a popular book. Of course, it was written 150 years ago, and it's a scientific book. It takes a bit of work to read it, but it's Anybody can do it if they want to. And it's the only way you can defend yourself against all of the people who come along and tell you what capital says. And they tell you what it doesn't say. Or they say, oh, well, Marx, young Marx contradicts later Marx. Or they say, I've had this one recently. And Rapal, maybe you can help me out here, right? Because in my recollection, this is pure nonsense. And it must just be another one of those kind of trolling activities of some people on the internet. But I've noticed in some of the recent videos I've done, and I think it's because I've tried to give a very simple and popular overview of overproduction and the reason that capitalism can't solve its own problems. And underneath, I'm starting to see comments along the lines that, oh, the problem with this woman is she hasn't read Capital Volumes 2 and 3. Well, actually, I have, but I mean, it's true. I haven't read them yesterday, um, but I have read them. And I don't think that they say what these comments say, but the comments kind of say, ah, oh, well, in those, Marx talks about there are all the things that basically negate what she's saying, and he contradicts what he said in Capital Volume 1, and, you know, that's why you have to read Volumes 2 and 3. And I feel like this type of trolling, again, it's there, so that all oh, the people who've read Capital Volume 1 go, oh, really, Marx contradicted it later? Oh, I didn't know that, and start to have kind of doubt. You know, now, Hapal, I'm, I'm sure you're more familiar with Capital Volume 2 and 3 than I am. Uh, do you remember there being anything in there that contradicts the, you know, our understanding of overproduction? Absolutely nothing. I mean, what Volume 2 and 3 do in a very, very erudite fashion, as you would expect from somebody like Marx, Volume 2 deals with the total circulation of capital, how commodity production takes place, how there are two departments of production, the department that produces the means of production and the department that produces the means of consumption and how that there has to be balance between the two for the economy not to get into a tangle with, with, with itself. And that can be done, but it can only be done with planned production. It cannot be done on the basis of the market. That's what causes the problem. Now, people have to go and read. I mean. The, they're at least telling you that you haven't read volume two and three. Uh, that is a lie, and I take your word for it. But they go further than that. In the Soviet Union, people were discouraged to read volume two and three. Well, what is the proof for that? Absolutely none. 
you can see Stalin's own writings, Lenin's own writings. They're littered with references to vol, 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 volume two, two and three. And what volume three does is it solves a problem which wasn't solved when volume one was written. And it was only because Marx was writing three volumes and he knew he knew what the plan was. And the, the problem that is solved in volume three, which wasn't solved in volume one, is the fact that Marx quite rightly says, all value <laughs> is produced by human la la labor. That is the source of production, There's of value, that is the source of profit. Well, if that is the case, then industries which employ more workers should be more profitable than industries which employ fewer workers. Well, what Marx is saying is, you have to take the capitalist economy as a, as a, as, as a whole. And this particular um, problem is solved on the basis that when there is a glut in one industry, people will rush to produce in another industry. If, people, if industries that employ more laborers, more workmen than industries that don't are making a lot of money, hundreds and thousands of capitalists will flock to that industry. And very soon it'll be glutted with whatever they are producing. And that will become unprofitable and they go for some other industry. So it levels out. Although it's quite right that human labor is the sole source of profit and of value, but in the market conditions, it is done on the basis of influx and afflux of capital from one industry to other or from one industry in, 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 into another. And that's how the problem is solved. That's what, apart from dealing with the question of uh, land and land rental, that's what volume three does. There's no contradiction between volume one and three. Volume three was part of the entire scheme of Marx. Their publication may have been separated by 20 years. That's no fault of Marx. Marx died. And it was left to Engels to do that. And he produced all the three volumes. And including the material that he had left in criticism of political economy and of other writers, that was left to Kautsky to do it. That is the fourth vol volume of capital. So people who say that, they're just literally uh, uh, talking nonsense. There's no basis for it. But what the, the point that we have to set, as Engels said in his inimitable style, the contradiction between the productive forces and the relation to production is not like the contradiction between the original sin and divine justice that exists in the mind of man. No, it's a real contradiction which exists outside of, 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 of the control of individuals. And that is the contradiction that we have got to bring to the notice of the working class and actually arm them with the signs that will help them get rid of rid, rid of capitalism. That is something, the understanding of that is the thought, as Engel said, of theoretical so, 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 socialism. And that thought must be taken to the working class as a means of arming them to get, get rid of cap, capitalism. Without, with, unless you get rid of capitalism, there is going to be no ridding of the crisis of, of, of overproduction. And you will not be able to get rid of either crisis in, in production or 
war, if, if you like. And further, under the condition of monopoly capitalism, although commodity production is the basis of the, of the system, that is undermined basically by the financial institutions. Production takes place, but the cream is skimmed off by the financial manipulators. The major portion of the profits goes to the manipulators of the market, the geniuses of finance capital. And they're the ones who dictate. That's precisely why there is so much of export capital. Export of capital is not sending printed dollars abroad. It is actually taking production outside of the of the national boundaries of individual countries because national boundaries have become too narrow uh, to allow for the expansion of the market. So they take wherever, wherever they possibly can, possibly can go. They go where labor is cheap. They go where there is less regulation. They go where uh, there's a big, big market, market to be exploited. And they go where there are sources of investment and they are, of course, sources of, sources of investment. And there are all kinds of rubbish about pop population as well, you know, Malthusianism and all the rest of it. They try it in Western Europe. They were saying the same about China. China was overpopulated. Now everyone, including every capitalist, is saying China is short of laborers. You know, I have always disagreed with the Chinese communists on, on the question of one-child policy. It's acceptance of Malthusianism, which Marx quite rightly described as Malthus, Malthusianism, is a slander on the human race. Our problems are not too many people. Our problems are insufficient product available to the work, working people. Amasitam put in his own style. If a, work, if a person is born with one mouth, he's born with two hands, he can work. work. There's no need to, 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 to say to people, you can't be fed because there are too many of you. But capitalists have 10, 15 children, none of them ever starves. Why should working people's kids be starved? And if there's a, there's a tendency to have fewer people, it is because the conditions of modern life have actually convinced people to have fewer kids. People had more kids at one time because most of them died. There was disease. Now, modern medicine and availability of it on a mass scale has reduced um, the de 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 death of new, new, newly born babies. There were no pensions for anybody. And you had 15 children and you thought if 13 of them are ungrateful and they won't look after you in old age, at least one or two might, might be. So that was another, another factor. And then you had to save for education and everything. But under the conditions that prevailed in, in the post-Second World War era, most countries had some kind of public education system, some kind of health system. So the necessity for saving to the same extent does not exist. And precisely for that reason, people do not have as many as as as, as many any kids kids as kids as before. Thanks, Paul. You've highlighted something really important that I want us to end ah, on. And ah, I'll sorry, just one thing. That the, the 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 question of computers and the Soviet Union. Um, I have to say to both of you, Soviet Union was not backward in computers. If it had been, Yuri Gagarin would not be the first person to go, in, go, in, go into space. Soviet Union was well ahead. And Soviet economy was wrecked by following the bourgeois reforms that were instituted 
in the aftermath of, of Stalin that it's a subject dear to my heart, but we cannot go into it today. The Soviet Union did not collapse because computers were not sold, sold, sold to the Soviet Union or because there were, you know, laws. Caleb is right. There were laws. The European Union agreed not to sell anything of a technological nature to the Soviet Union. But the Soviet Union was quite capable of solving its own problems. And even under the conditions of market reform, they produced a lot. They tried to prevent um, Soviet Union uh, sending gas to Europe by pipe. But the Soviet Union was able to solve the problems of building the turbines and ev everything possible on, on its own. Like China now has been forced by sanctions to build its own uh, semiconductors. And the bourgeoisie is surprised, how can China do it? China should have done it all the time. But under market reforms, they were saying, well, it's okay, we can buy them. They were spending $300 billion a year buying chips from various American corporations. And by applying sanctions, they've done a favor to China. The Chinese are, have begun to produce advanced chips. And it's only a question of one or two or three years before they catch up with 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 chip chip or micro semiconductor technology and of course in the process they've destroyed the market that the american monopolies had of selling chips on such a large large scale to china and they'll be very sorry and it's not for nothing that when xi jinping went to san francisco lately well two things happened one san francisco was cleaned up <laughs> the beggars and homeless people were thrown out the streets, the streets were swept and it, they were made to look sparkle as though America is really a haven and San Francisco is the place where you want to stay, not, be, not Beijing. Secondly, of course, you would have thought when, although Biden in his state of advanced dementia described Xi Jinping as a dictator, when he spoke to the cream of American monopoly capitalists, they all stood up and gave him a standing ovation because he only had to utter one sentence. China is a very big market. Now that always excites and attracts attention on the part of any capitalist trying desperately to sell his wares. And secondly, China is a friend and not an enemy. Now, whether he said tongue in cheek or whether he meant it, I do not know. But the fact was they immediately stood up and gave him a standing ovation and even some bourgeois respectable newspapers were saying why would they stand up and give, give him a standing ovation perhaps they didn't realize they were doing it no they did realize what they were doing they're not stupid people just because they're capitalists their brains are not locked at a certain level they are locked but not on this occasion thanks well before we finish up which i'm i'm aware that we probably should do before i just hand over to caleb for a last word i just wanted to bring it back um to remind people what this is all about fundamentally and it's something that's so lost uh, but you've highlighted it uh, in part of what you said there Hapal. Uh, it's so lost on so many people that marxism is a science uh, we don't call physics newtonism right because the fact that newton uh, discovered the law of gravity doesn't make it newton's nice idea for someone else to come along and have a different idea about right newton discovered a law that objectively exists 
whether or not he had noticed its operation, right? And if Newton hadn't been the one to discover that law, at some point, somebody else would have done. The conditions were there, had developed, in which it was possible for men to work out that relationship uh, and understand that gravity is a law of nature. And, you know, so, so that, was, that was the result of the development of human society as a whole. Now, Marxism arose, at a time where the, the could capitalism had developed to the point where it was possible to understand the mechanisms by which it worked. And Marx was the person who did that scientific job. In the process, he discovered real laws operating outside of any of our um, control, not there because we see them or whether or not we see them. They are objective facts, objective laws operating underneath how things work. Now, the fact that you can see um, little, you know, you can you can find individual examples of, you know, something that's a bit different or, oh, but my experience is this or I see this guy over here. No, what Marx is showing you is the law underpinning the whole of society. When you take capitalist economy as a whole, underneath this is where the wealth is coming from underneath you know this is what this is what overproduction is doing this is why we have the con contradictions we've had he reveals the essence of capitalist development of capitalist profit he also revealed laws underpinning the development of society human society he he revealed laws underpinning the direction of travel of history uh, he showed a method for understanding all knowledge and you know all matter in the world that are hugely advantageous for people to to use uh, and apply to any area of life and of course since he because what he discovered shows us not only how the contradictions contradictions come about within our society but how is there going to be resolved? And because that resolution means removing the capitalist class from its position as the usurper of society's wealth, the capitalists have ever since been engaged in this huge exercise in hiding these truths, hiding this scientific advance, which could free humanity to do all kinds of amazing things and to have a really excellent life in the process. They are hiding this information from us systematically, consistently, persistently. And one of the ways they do it is to tell us that these are just ideas of some dead white European man that we don't really have to have to read. And anyway, it's written in a style you won't understand. And anyway, it says this and it doesn't make, you know, they tell us what it says rather than letting us come and find it for ourselves. And then if you do buy it, you know, a book by Marx, you'll find the book's twice as fat as it needs to be because it's full of a commentary explaining to you why you don't have to really take heed of the content. And it's just a kind of historical document. Caleb. Well, I guess I think a good way to end. Uh, would, would you, after, after Caleb, would you allow me one minute? I, I guess I would just like to end on the thought that, um, you know, Marxism is really a celebration of human creativity and that uh, what Engels points out in his essay of the role of labor uh, in the transition from ape to man is that every other species simply interacts with its environment. But man masters his environment and is constantly forcing the environment to serve him and reinventing 
his relationship with the environment to be more productive, to get to a higher mode of production, to have a, a higher life expectancy, a bigger population, a more comfortable life. And that that ability of human beings to constantly reinvent their relationship with their environment, to, to interact with their environment in a more efficient way, that kind of defines humanity as the creative uh, technology creating and labor uh, laboring creature. And I think that that's one one aspect of Marxism that, that really comes across. There's something amazingly unique about human beings. Um, so I always tell people beavers have been building their beaver dams the same way for thousands of years. Uh, ants have been making their ant farms the same way for thousands of years. But in just eight, nine thousand years, we've gone from hunter gatherers in the woods to space travel and smartphones. And there is something unique about humanity and that we shouldn't be you know, tricked into thinking of human beings as just another animal. There is something unique about mankind. And Marxism is about understanding that and, you know, putting putting it to good use. Beautiful. Thanks, Gerd. Kapal. I just really just last word I wanted to say was the message that has to be taken to the working classes that short of getting rid of capitalism, they can't get rid of either the crisis of overproduction or the, the imperialist wars. Because our party, if not the only one, one of the very few in Britain that stresses that point, and even though it's small, it's attracting the attention of the, of the security forces in Britain. But that's a message that we must take to the working class. That is the whole point of Marxism. It's not written for intellectual to read and enjoy themselves. I disagree with those fools who think it's boring because even bourgeois uh, professors in Germany are known to buy Marxist and Engels' work just to see the beauty of the language in which, in which, they, in which they express themselves. And I think there's a turn in events when working people all over the world are becoming aware of the inadequacy of capitalism, we've got to strike that message home. And I think we will find more receptive audiences than we have found for 20, 30 years. And on that happy note, I wish you both a Merry Christmas and a very happy new year. Great. Absolutely. Thanks for listening to Proletarian Radio. We aim to bring you the best Marxist analysis on current affairs, revolutionary history, and theory. Do like, comment, subscribe, and share our content to help us reach the widest possible audience. We are a small organization with limited resources, and we need workers' support if we are to grow and fulfill our mission. If you are able to make a one-off or regular donation, no matter how small, please visit our website at thecommunists.org and register as a supporter.